Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So we are in the middle of our series uh, called Covenant in Kingdom right now. And uh, <laughs> these are kind of two massive ideas that work themselves through the Bible. This idea of covenant, which is relationship with the kind of this God is with us. God wants to be in relationship with us. God has made a promise to us that he will not leave us, abandon us, or forsake us, that he's going to be with us whether we want him to be or not. I just taught this week in, uh, with the youth group, Psalm 139, where it says, you know, no matter where I go, you're there with me. No matter how dark the place that I go is, it becomes light around me. And the kids are like, man, that's amazing that, like, no matter where I go, God is going to be there. And God is there wherever we go because he's made this promise, he's made this commitment to us that he's going to be with us whether we accept him or reject him. No matter what, he's going to follow us and he's going to pursue us and he's going to love us. And he's going to be calling us back to him to know him as father the entire way. And so that's kind of the idea of covenant is that God wants to be in deep relationship with us. And then there's this idea of kingdom. And this kingdom part is this doing, this kind of like kingdom doing, this thing that God is doing in us and among us, it has to do with his will and that <laughs> the fact that as we read in Revelation that there's going to be a day where his kingdom is going to fully come. There's going to be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. And he is going to be and live with his people that the covenant and the kingdom are going to come slamming together. And what a glorious day that is going to be. But there's also kind of some kingdom work that we have to do. There's some work that we get to do in this kingdom bit that we get to do is kind of representing our God to the rest of the world. And so the question as we think about kingdom is, how do we represent God to our world? How are we doing that? How well are we doing that? And how has God called us to go and do that in the places where we work, serve, and live? And so we've been looking at scripture, we've been looking at Abraham, we've been looking at the Joseph story. Last week we looked at the Moses story. And this week we're going to look at another Advent story. And what's crazy is that these stories are kind of Advent stories in the sense that there's a period of waiting, a period of anticipation, and a period of coming that, that happens in each of these stories. And so with Abraham, it's just this like, God makes this promise, you're going you're gonna to be a father, and you're going to have, um, you know, your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham has like one kid way late in life. And Abraham's like, I don't, I don't know. Like, there's a long time of waiting. There's a long Advent season. And Abraham doesn't even get to see that come to fruition. Joseph, he's thrown in a well. He gets this dream that he's going to rule someday. He's thrown in a well. He's put into prison. He waits in prison. He's in prison, and he's kind of from the well moment to when he becomes second in command is like a time of like 10 years. 10 years he's in waiting. He's in the Advent of God to come through and to to make good on his promise. And then he becomes second in command. Last week we read about Moses and how the people of Israel were kind of in this waiting for God to free them from their slavery for 400 years. I mean, you want to talk about some angsty, kind of heavy, deep waiting, anticipation of coming. Try 400 years of slavery. And then Moses comes and he sets the people free just to wait some more in the desert, Right? They end up in this kind of like advent place of way where they got to wait in the desert for 40 years before they can go take the promised land because of their disobedience. 
And then from there, we have Joshua. And so Joshua marches the people into Canaan. They, they take it. And that's kind of an all-kingdom story. It's a kingdom story where the kingdom of God moves forward, and they establish God's kingdom and God's people among the nations in Israel. And it's from this place of covenant, from this place where God has promised that he will go do that. And today we arrive at this kind of Advent story, the this, this story of waiting, that kind of puts us in the same place of kind of already but not yet place, the same place where we are with, with David. So we're going to look at David this morning. We're going to see how David was anointed king, but yet he's the, just a child when he's anointed king, like a teenager. And Saul is still king. He's still in power. And David's got to, like, wait it out. Like, David's king. Rightfully, by God's eyes, David's the king. Saul is not. But in reality, here on earth, like, Saul's still in the position of king, and David's got to, like, wait this out until he gets, gets to take this rightfully spot as king. And we kind of see that mimicked in our own lives. As Jesus has come, he's lived among us, he's conquered death, he's declared himself king, and he rules. But in many ways, we're waiting for that reality that we read in Revelation this morning to come true. And so we, we call this period the already but not yet. And this is the advent that we find ourselves in. This advent where we have hope. This advent where we look towards peace to be people of peace. This advent where we go forth with joy that God's kingdom is coming. And so I just want to jump in this morning into the story of David. And, and I just wanted to see this, want us to see this morning how it's an advent story. And, I, and to me, this this series, the fact that we've been doing this series of covenant and kingdom together around Advent um, has allowed me to see these stories in the Old Testament through a new light. Like, I would have never looked at the Moses story and been like, oh yeah, Advent story, definitely. I would have never looked at the David story and be like, Advent story. But because we're doing these series in this season, it's made me see these stories in a completely new light and how they oftentimes mimic the reality that we're in today. And so I hope that you guys can catch some of that as we go through the story of David this morning. So <laughs> the story of David begins with the people of Israel. They're, they're in Canaan, and the 12 tribes have settled. And there's this period called the Judges, where God rules the people as king, and he kind of raises up leaders to see fit to take care of business whenever business needs to be done. They're often really broken people, really human people, but God uses them in a moment to bring his kingdom to fruition and to continue to to rule the people and guide the people towards his statutes and his commandments. And so we have this period of the judges, and what happens is that over time the people begin to look at their neighbors and they see all their neighbors and that they have kings and that these kings are able to mobilize people, that these kings are able to take more land, that these people that, these people that have kings are able to use resources just a little bit more strategically and better. And so they're like, God, we want a king. We want a king to rule over us. And God tells the people, no, you really don't. You really don't want a king. And they're like, no, we really do. Like, we've looked at all of our neighbors, and we really do. And he's like, this is what's going to happen when you have a king. And they're like, yeah, we want that. Sign us up for that. And so they reject God as king. Now, this is a place in covenant where God would have been kind of like rightfully so able to just abandon his people. Be like, you abandoned me. I'm going to abandon you. That's the way covenant worked. It's like for as long as both people showed up, it was good. You take care of your half of the deal, I'll take care of my half of the deal. But with God, the covenant works out in a way that says, no matter what happens to your end of the deal, I'm showing up. I'm showing up. And so the people reject God 
And God continues to show up. He continues to be present. And he gives into these desires and will of the people to have a king. And so he says, all right, I'm going to give you a king. His name's going to be Saul. And it just so happens that Saul is going to be the tallest guy in the land. It seems like that's how God picks the king. He's like, tallest guy here, biggest guy, king. And so it says in the Bible that Saul is taller than everyone from the shoulders up. And so he stands a whole head above everyone in all of Israel. This is your king, Saul. And there's kind of this covenant language that God makes with Saul. God has a plan with Saul around being king. And it says this, it says that, Saul, you are going to save my people from the hands of the Philistines. This is what God's plan for Saul is. And so Saul, he's walking around the Israelites, he's declared king. But Saul is always kind of this angsty, unsure, impatient kind of guy. I don't know if it's just because he got tired of like all the tall jokes or what. But he gets impatient. He kind of gets a little unruly. And so God gives him this command to go fight the Philistines. But he says, when you go to fight the Philistines, I want you to wait seven days before you go and attack the Philistines. And I want you to wait seven days, and I'm going to send my priest, Samuel, who's anointed you as king, to prepare the sacrifices before you go into battle so that you would know that I am with you. And so Saul, he's got his people, he's got his army, they're, they're hiding out. And in the meantime, in these seven days, guess what happens? When you take a massive army and you just kind of set for seven days, the enemy finds out where you're at. And so the Philistines, they begin to surround Saul's camp. And the men in Saul's camp are getting uneasy so much so that they're, they're starting to leave. Like a couple guys are just starting to defect. They're like, we're not going to be here when this goes down because it's going to be real bad. Like the enemy's surrounding us. They're getting closer. Um, Saul's like, all right, seven days, click, it's up. All right, Samuel's not here. I guess I'm going to do the sacrifice myself. And so he performs the sacrifices himself. And in the, as soon as he's done performing these sacrifices, as soon as he's done performing this act of what a priest would do, Samuel shows up and he's like, Saul, what have you done? Kind of sounds like God in the garden when he shows up to Adam and Eve, right? He shows up to Adam, Adam, what have you done? And Saul's like, well, you really weren't on time. And the Philistines are coming in, and I haven't sought the Lord. He even admits, he's like, I've not sought the Lord on this battle. But I just thought we'd get the sacrifice done and go do it. And Samuel's got a message for Saul. He's like, God has removed his favor from you. And he's going to establish a new king in your place, one that searches and seeks my own, God's own heart. And so Saul goes into battle. I believe he's also successful in that battle, but he's just really never the same after that, as soon as his kingship is kind of removed. Saul is incredibly insecure. And so what Samuel then goes and does is that he goes and he finds the new king. He's like, God... What am I supposed to do? He's really torn up, Samuel. is. He's really torn up that Saul is no longer king. I mean, because if you're Samuel, you're, you're, you're second-guessing yourself, right? I mean, you're like, did I pick the right guy? Like, is this my failure? I mean, just think about what Samuel's going through. But God's like, no, get off your face. Wipe your tears up. I've got a new guy for you to go. And you need to go to Bethlehem. You need to find this guy named Jesse, and you need to seek out his sons. 
And so he goes to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse. He seeks out his sons. He's got seven sons that Jesse brings before him. And he's like, no, none of these guys are supposed to be king. He's like, Jesse, do you have another son? He's like, I do. He's in the field. He's like, go get that son. And so they bring David. He's the youngest son. He's the smallest son. And immediately Samuel knows this guy is going to be king. This guy is the guy that God has chosen to rule his people. And so he anoints David's head with oil. And David becomes king, kind of rightfully king, in that moment. Now in that moment, David doesn't like to get a scepter. There is no long live the king. There is no takeover. There is no ruling. He just goes back to the field. And he begins to live faithfully as the shepherd. And in his spare time, he learns the harp. He learns how to uh, sing and perform musically incredibly well. And, and we can tell that he's got this deep relationship with God. And we know that because of the book of Psalms. We know that because David is this man that seeks God's heart, that seeks God's relationship, that he, he writes these psalms. And these psalms are filled with incredible truth and incredible praise about who God is. These psalms come from a man that has walked incredibly close with God. Now in the meantime, Saul is just in his castle and he's being tormented. He's being tormented by this evil spirit is what it says. And he can't quite shake it. He brings all the kingdom's musicians to him to play for him, all the sorcerers to try and cast this kind of demon away, and he's unsuccessful. But he knows of David, and he hears of David's ability to play music and to, to sing, and so he brings David into the kingdom as David's just a young boy, brings him into the court, and David plays his harp for him, and the demon begins to leave. And he finds peace with his soul again. And so he keeps David around. Because David's kind of this like good luck charm that keeps Saul's heart in a place of peace. And it makes sense, right? I mean, if you read the Psalms, which we can assume is kind of like the stuff that David was, was pouring out in the presence of Saul, like there's, there's a power to it, there's a peace to it. You can't help but read it, but find kind of deep intimacy and relationship with God. Uh, <laughs> can you throw up the slide real quick? All right, we're going to keep this up for a little bit. And so what happens here, and we, we looked at this slide last week, but this is kind of what we're going to dive into for the next couple of weeks is just into these triangles. What happens here is that David is a man of the covenant. And so the covenant triangle is here on your right. And the covenant is the understanding that God is our father. And from that place, we understand that we have an identity that's with him. We have an identity that we are his sons, that we are his daughters, that we walk closely with him. And this is where David lives. David lives in this place of covenant relationship with God, trusting God, knowing God's character, knowing God's heart. And from there, David lives this life of obedience. And in this obedience, the outpouring of all of this, of this covenant relationship, is worship. Is worship. Worship that's powerful. And so not only does David see God as the father, but he also sees God as king. In many ways, David has gone against the grain of, of the people of Israel in rejecting God as king. David sees God as king, and in that, he has this authority that's given to him by God, and in there, he has power. And again, when we read the Psalms, we see that David is a man who sees God as both father and king, and he's a man who writes with this strong identity as a son, but also this incredible authority and power that's able to bring peace to our hearts that's able to speak truth 
about who God is. He's able to restore us and bring us back into deep relationship with God. And so we see that this, this book of Psalms is both a covenant work and a kingdom work that God does through his servant, David. And so that's kind of the first kind of application of both this co- covenant and kingdom coming together and working side by side and how these two things relate, how identity and authority relate and how obedience and power relate, that when we obey and when we understand that God is king, our obedience actually has some strength to it. And that's where kingdom change begins to happen in our world, the kingdom change that God wants to bring about. And so we need to live in both realities. The reality, though, with Saul is that he never sees God as father. And he never sees God as king because he's king. He's the one with the authority. He's the one with the power. He's the one that's able to tell people to move and to go fight. And we see that when he offers the sacrifice with, any, with no regard to God and God's command. And I think, honestly, the problem with Saul and maybe even the heart of his torments is that he doesn't know who he is. His identity isn't found in God. His identity isn't found in God being king, but instead his identity is found in his kingship. And the only way that his kingship is really secure in this world is if the people like him. And if he wins wars, and if he's successful, and if he's strong enough. And I think seeing the entire kingdom, Saul feeling the weight and pressure of what it is to be king in an earthly sense begins to crack a little bit. And he begins to try and do everything on his own strength. And we see Saul kind of <laughs> paralyzed by this fear most profoundly at the scene of David and Goliath. So the people of Israel, they've gone out to march against the Philistines again. The Philistines are their arch enemy that just won't go away. And so they're encamped. The <laughs> people of Israel are over here. The Philistines are over here. There's a steep valley in between them. And for six days, they, the Philistines send a champion out into the middle of the valley and says, bring out your champion. We'll fight to the death. Whoever wins will, will win, and you'll be able to take the slaves from either side. And Saul, he just, he just doesn't move. He's terrified. Which is kind of funny considering Saul's the biggest guy we got. He's the biggest guy the Israelites got. He's tall, he's ahead above everyone else, and he's king. Like, this just kind of like makes sense. Saul, you're the guy. I mean, everyone else is literally looking up to him to do this thing. But Saul's just kind of hiding out of his tent. And so one day David shows up. He's got some snacks for his brother. And David sees this Philistine call out the people of Israel. And David is angered. And so he goes to Saul and he says, let me fight him. And Saul's like, well, if you're going to fight him, um, I don't think that's wise. But if you are, like, put on this armor. Put on this armor of mine. And Saul, you know, David puts on this armor that's for this really tall dude. And as we know of David, like, David, he's built, but he's not huge. He's just kind of your average guy, and so this armor does not fit. He looks silly in it. He's like, no, I'm not going to take this armor. (laughs) And this is where I want to go to the book of Samuel and kind of read the story, this kind of like juxtaposition between Saul's fear and how David is able to have confidence, not in himself, but because of the covenant. And because of the covenant, he's able to do this kingdom work. And so in 1 Samuel 17, 33, it says this. It says, Saul said to David, 
You're not able to go against the Philistine and fight with him, for you're just a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. And so what you see here is that there's a time in Israelite history and culture where you are old enough to become a man of war. David isn't that yet. And he hasn't been training to be that. He's been a shepherd instead. He said this, But David said to a servant, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and a lamb from, <laughs> and took it from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, I love this passage because if you were to stop here, you'd say, David's just a cocky young boy. He's just kind of like thrown out his resume to Saul. Look at me. Killed some bears, killed some lions. Pretty strong. I can do this Philistine. I mean, you could look, read it that way and say, like, man, David, you are, you're kind of this young, full of yourself kind of guy. But everything changes with the next verse. It says this. It says, the Lord who delivered me. This is David speaking to Saul. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knew where his strength came from. He knew that it was by God's grace and by God's will that he was able to be delivered by the lion and the bear and to be able to tend his sheep well. He knew that it would be by that same strength that he would conquer this Philistine. And so Saul says to David, go and may the Lord be with you. At this time, Saul's probably like packing up, ready to go. Like, let's run for the hills as we send this boy to go. Saul, who was the strongest, who should have been the guy to go and represent the kingdom of God, hides away in his tent. And instead, we have the true king, who is David, going with confidence and with the strength of the kingdom to go and fight. And so this is the exchange between David and the Philistine, if we go to verse 43. The Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. <laughs> and the beasts of the earth and all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So what we see here is how this <laughs> covenant confidence translates into kingdom victory and kingdom boldness. And so the question that I have for us today is where do we stand? How do we live this life? Kind of like how David was, not David, how <coughs> Dennis was asking us in the song before the passing of the peace, where do we get our own strength? What are we relying on? Do we find ourselves like Saul? maybe the strongest man in the room, but also the most insecure, the most terrified, the most <laughs> paralyzed, the one who's ready to just run away from it all? 
where we find ourselves like David, where we've done some stuff, but it has nothing to do with our own strength. It has nothing to do with what we've actually done. But we look back on the things that we've done and we say, God has been faithful through all these things. In this place where there's anxiety, where there's fear, where there's unknown outcomes, I'm going to trust that God's going to be faithful there too. And so are we a people of the covenant where we have confidence, where we get to go and walk in kingdom victories? Or are we a people who shudder away and rely on our own strength and put on our own armor? And I think that there are times that we're a little bit of both, if we're really honest. There's times where God breaks in and we are people that are powerful and work in kingdom movements and kingdom strength, but there's often a lot of times where we find ourselves like Saul and we feel like we've got to put on our armor and battle on our strength. But the reality is, is that the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into your hands. The battle comes from this place of covenant, from this place of God's protection, of the place of God's presence, the place of God's promise to be with us and to, for us to be his people. We get to go in confidence to do the kingdom work he has called us to do. After this moment where David slays Goliath, it just kind of goes downhill for Saul. Not that it wasn't already going downhill before, but it goes like way downhill. Like David comes into the city, they come into the city, and the people are cheering. Saul kills the thousands, David kills the ten thousands. And if you're Saul and if your identity is built on the praise and the acknowledgement of the people, this is not good news. It's going to throw you into a deep tizzy. And a deep tizzy is what Saul gets thrown into. He continues to call David to play music, but the music just isn't doing what it used to do for him. So much so that he continues to send David out on military missions. He's like, all right, the best way that I can get David out of here is we're just going to send him to the front lines. So he sends David to the front lines. And every time David goes to the front lines, guess what happens? The kingdom of God breaks through. And there's victory. Because David's confidence is not in his own strength, but in the strength of God. And we know that it's God's will to deliver the people from the Philistines. That's what God's heart was for Saul. But now David is walking in that and executing that. God's kingdom is still coming. And so eventually... David's popularity continues to skyrocket as Saul begins to sulk more and more until one day David's playing and Saul throws his spear at David. And David misses the spear, but then he knows that it's over. And he begins to run for his life. And so David, he, he's this kind of criminal. He's this fugitive. And it's amazing to me how we've looked at these stories, how this kind of like king there's this kingship part, there's this shepherd part, and there's this fugitive part that kind of runs through all the stories, like from Joseph to Moses to now David. David's on the run. He's this fugitive of the crown. At this point, Saul knows that David, like it's no, it's no secret to Saul that David's his successor. Saul knows what's about to happen. And eventually one day the Philistines come and they surround <laughs> Saul and his people and Saul and all of his family is wiped out, and the Philistines take over. And that's kind of the end of Saul. And it's because Saul could never regain. He could never enter into this covenant place with God. And so he was never able to walk out in kind of this kingdom power. And so he fails on his own strength. He falls on his own sword. And that's the end of Saul. 
In the meantime, David, in, the, in his hiding, he's bringing together men from the wilderness, other people who are fugitives, and he's mobilizing, and he creates this great army of strength, and he's able to come in and wipe the Philistines out and reclaim the place that God has prepared for his people, and he takes the rightful seat as king. And so the second question for us this morning is, are we like Saul in the sense that we feel like we have to execute our power over others to maintain control? Or are we like David, where we enable and we give power away to others? And in that, God's kingdom comes. I think it's completely backwards. Like I said last week, a lot of times we work the triangle backwards. Instead of seeing God as king and working from the authority that we have as his sons and daughters and executing power, instead we start at power. And we say, I'm going to manipulate you I'm going to twist your arm. I'm going to lie to you just a little bit. I'm going to do everything that I can to exert my power over you so that I can have authority over you so that I can be king over you in our lives. And I think that when we do that, we also find ourselves in a place of incredible insecurity and fear and doubt, knowing that if something goes wrong, if we miss staying in control by one minute, by one moment, the whole kingdom that we've built up is just going to come tumbling down. And so in many ways, we, we live as Saul. I know that I have. I know I've thrown my spears. And that's kind of this hope of Advent where we talk about peace, where the spears are turned into pruning hooks, where the swords are turned into plowshares. And I know that we all have spears. I know we all have <laughs> swords in our own hearts that we would love to execute on others if just given the chance. But God calls us to turn those things into things that bring life and fruit and to be reminded that we're not king. He is. And that's good news. And because he's king, that true peace is going to come. True joy is going to come. The things that we really crave in our soul and in our heart are going to come because he is king. And so the question is, are we ready to acknowledge him as king and are we ready to acknowledge him as father? And are we ready to live out the covenant promise and work of him being father and king in our lives. What we see in David is that he's a worshiper and he's a warrior. In his worship, he makes known the greatness of God's love and God's kingdom. And as warrior, he lives out a place of God's love and he executes God's kingdom wherever he's at. And I believe that that's the place that God has called us to be, that he's called us to be like David, as worshiper and as warrior. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus has come. Jesus comes to the earth, and we see that at the cross is where he establishes his covenant with us, where he becomes our father, where he establishes this new covenant that, again, we read about this morning in Jeremiah, that the law is written on our hearts and that he will be over us and that we will be his people on the cross, he secures the covenant by sacrificing himself there. As every covenant required some type of sacrifice, he himself is the sacrifice. And then at the resurrection, we have the victory of the kingdom. We have the promise of victory through the kingdom. And so when we look at the cross of Jesus and when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we can say with 100% confidence that God wants to be in relationship with us and he wants to know us and he wants us to know his love. And we can look at the resurrection and also know that we have the confidence to go boldly into the world 
with his love, with his joy, with his peace, and to make known his kingdom among all people. And I think if we're honest, that place of resurrection, that place of confident victory of the kingdom is where we often falter. We often wonder, do, do we really have victory here? We allow doubt to sneak in, and we begin to rely again on our own strength. I'm here to encourage us not to do that, not to do that anymore, because that just leads to our own death and our own anxiety and our own fears, and it becomes a terrible world to live in. So what I want us to walk in this week is this confidence of the kingdom, this confidence that we have victory over all things. And that we are called to be worshipers and warriors. And when we go to war, it's not this war against flesh and blood. It's not against your neighbor. It's not against your neighbor that annoys you. It's not against your neighbor that has hurt you. It's not against your coworker that has done you wrong. But it's against the, the evil one and the evil forces of the world. When we look at Ephesians chapter 6, it says this. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all of that, stand firm. And so I know, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I think of enemies, and I think of people that I need to kind of go to war against, I begin thinking of people and names and people that have wronged me in ways that I'm going to execute my power over them to get my just desserts. But the promise of the covenant and the kingdom is that we're there to go to save them. We're there to go love them. We're there to go bring peace and reconciliation to that relationship and that place. Because it's more important that the kingdom come and his will be done here than for us to just be king for a moment. And so that's the challenge that I leave with us today. And it's a hard challenge. But I think it's the challenge of Advent. I think it's the challenge of Christmas as we look for this kingdom to come. Because in many ways, we're like David. Jesus has come. He's created covenant. He's been resurrected. He's been declared king. But yet, we're still waiting for that day when it actually fully happens in the fullness of heaven and when he returns again. But at the same time, we have a covenant that we can stand with confidence in and that we can find our identity in. And there's a kingdom that God wants to break through through each one of us. I know it. Each one of us, he wants us to be kingdom warriors. He wants to use us to bring peace and love and joy and patience and reconciliation to this world through each and every one of us. One of us can't do it all. Three of us can't do it all. It's going to require every one of us and more, to go to bring his kingdom to. And that's what we see David doing. That's what we see David doing everywhere he goes. He's living in this place of secure confidence in his relationship with God and who God is and who God's character is. And he lives from that place, serving and loving and protecting others. And I believe that's the call. And so as we go into this week, as we continue to meditate on Advent, I challenge us to just kind of meditate in this place of God's character. Are we secure in his covenant? And then when we feel like he's calling us to go somewhere, are we willing to say yes? And are we willing to go with strength and power, not of our own, but of God who is faithful? Would you guys pray with me?
Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you that you are an incredibly good God. That you're a God that's faithful to us even when we reject you. That you are near to us even when we walk in the darkest places. And God, that you're always pursuing relationship and reconciliation with us. God, I pray that you would renew our minds, that you renew our hearts, and that we'd be able to walk in peace. That you would take away our fears, our anxieties, our uncertainties, our need to be in control. God, we confess those things to you this morning. Our need to be able to control outcomes, to control next steps, to control our children, to control our finances, to control our lives. God, we confess these things. And God, we ask you that you would be king over them and that we would know the goodness of your kingdom and that you would bring peace and hope and joy to our hearts as we prepare for your coming, as we prepare for the coming of your kingdom, as you make all things new. In your name we pray. Amen.